0: back for another edition of Terry's talking. This is a Thursday edition this week. Um how you doing Terry? I am well. Hey, right off the top, we wanted to plug a couple of appearances you have coming up. Uh June 7th and June 14th, a couple of Tuesdays. Why don't you talk about those real quick? You're going to be out signing some books and talking to fans. Yeah, yeah, we're going to have a uh I'll do
1: a talk at both places and take some questions and then, you know, they'll try to sell you some books if you want to buy some. Father's Day's coming. Anyway, June 7th will be library, 7 p.m. So, June 7th will be library, 7 p.m. And then June 14th, Wall of Books in Parmatown. And that will be at 6.30, June 14th, 6.30 at Wall of Books. I picked that from Parmatown uh, because one is a newer bookstore. I was glad to see somebody open one. And secondly, I grew up just down the street from Parmitown on Westminster Drive. So, it's, it's be an excuse to go to the old neighborhood.
0: And so that'll be June fourteenth um, at six thirty. All right. So put those in your calendar. It'd be nice uh, to get out around Father's Day and see Terry and get a book. <laughs> oh, there's my dog. <laughs> we're poor dog sitting. Uh, well, all right, Terry. What are those book signings? That's right. We're going to bring the dog to the book signing. Get you put a little little prop paw print next to your autograph. So, Terry, let's get into the Guardians here. They're sixteen and 18, four games out in the AL Central. Been a eventful. Start to the season. They're only thirty-four games in, but they've already had some injuries. They've had a COVID outbreak that cost them some time with uh, Terry Francona and some of the coaches. Uh, Franmil Reyes has been in a slump. The, the, you know, this team's right around five hundred. I know you predicted them to win, you know, seventy-seven, well, 77 games. Seventy-seven and eighty-five. Yeah. Yeah. So is this kind of what it's going to be all season, or do you think that this team's best baseball is ahead of it this summer, and we're going to see them? get above 500, maybe be in the race in July and August?
1: I expected a worse start. So um,
0: at this point, what are they, 16 and 18? 16 um, and 18. Going into yeah. the, the rescheduled well, game from last night, they're playing this afternoon against the Reds. So I would take that in a heartbeat
1: uh, for a start, given, as you mentioned, some of the other things. And also, um, in general, Francona's teams statistically play better after the All-Star break than before. Part of the reason is because... Usually early in the year, they're sorting through some of their young players, finding out who they like, who they don't, who they want to bring up. Players tend to play better when they come up from the minors during the course of a season than just opening it, um, as Frank Cotto would call it, April in Cleveland. Uh, So that's uh, uh, those are reasons really to be pretty upbeat. Uh, My biggest concern, I wrote a column about it the other day, sort of. Channeling the memory of Les Levine, the, you know the, the self-proclaimed truth and reason, which is this: the how about they have the second worst ERA in the American League? And I didn't expect that. And then also, the you know, starting rotation is like an ERA of like four point seven or something—that's really bad. Granted, part of it is Savali, especially Savali being so bad. But until the other night, please hasn't been very good either. Um, so those
0: are things to, to watch. But overall, I'm 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 pleased. Yeah, I would guess they are too. The instability and they've had some injuries. I mean, Quan was out. You mentioned the pitching struggles and this COVID thing. And one thing that was kind of impressive to me, and it was just a small episode, but we've seen this all season. So they lose to the Reds five to four on Tuesday night. They're down going into late innings and you go into the eighth and Andres Jimenez beats out an infield hit by hustling down to first base. I think he did another one of those head first slides. Yeah, into the first. We, we don't like, but the yeah, h- but, but, but the hustle was there. He steals second, right? Mm-hmm. Miles straw drives him in and they, they close the gap and they, they bring it into extra innings. The, Carl Willis was the acting manager and it, it just goes to show you the culture of this team is really ingrained when you don't have Terry Francona in the dugout. And these guys are still making hustle plays. They got the game into extra innings, and and you got it to the point where the bases were loaded and Jose Ramirez was up with a chance to win the game in extra innings. And I just thought it was just a little episode of just that hustle to first base, manufacturing a run when you really need it. It just kind of shows where this team's head is at. Everything that's been going on, they're going to go out, and they're just going to play hard every single play. And I thought that was really uh, really said a lot about where this team's head is at.
1: They have been. And I think it's because of the couple of the veterans they do have on the team, starting with Jose. Jose plays hard all the time. And so if that guy is, you know, running under his batting helmet and all that other stuff, uh, that does set an example there. Uh, secondly, um, they're playing for their jobs. I, I, one thing I've always liked about Ahmed Rosario, he plays so hard. It may not always be what you want, but he runs hard on everything. Uh, And I think, you know, and he's an older player for this team. Uh, You know, you look around, uh, Hedges, you know, plays hard. Of course, he can't run very fast, but he tries. And he's back there behind the plays, getting all beat up and doing everything else. So, you know, in terms of the kind of guys you want for your team, they have those there. And it does rub off on the young guys and it helps you he always talk about culture, you know, Cleveland baseball is one of the few teams. I would say the team, if you go to the last 10 years, what team has had the best overall culture? It's been the guardians slash tribe.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to think who else would fit into that, uh, into that group. I mean, you're, you're right. And it, it comes through. That's why they're competitive every year, even when they lose players and, uh, yeah, it really says the something. Browns, so,
1: you? you know, we've heard cultured stories from the Browns forever. You know, get this culture, or that culture. The Cavaliers basically had a LeBron culture when they won, then they had a ping pong culture when they didn't, and with a bunch of kids. You know, that's what was refreshing about the Cavs this past season is they were starting to develop an identity. But overall, you know, the Guardians from the moment really Francona showed up and kind of joined up with uh, Antonetti and Chernoff, you know, it's been a team that has had very good to great pitching uh, team that's like drama free and a team that in the last nine years, they have had eight winning seasons, five trips to the playoffs, one to the World Series, you know, for all the Dolans are cheap or whatever is it's an impressive record.
0: Yeah, and we don't see all the conversations that go on between Terry Francona and the coaches and the players, but I I wanted to get your thoughts on something, Terry. So Joe Noga, our colleague, had an interesting uh, article this week about robot umpires, and Mm -hmm. I thought this was a really good example. Uh, Dan Gilbert, the owner of the Cavs, has this saying. He has kind of all these principles that he builds his business on. Isms, yeah, (laughs) and one one of his isms is, and it's not an ism, but he says the inches that you need are all around you. Yeah. And I, I thought that was interesting. But it, it, I thought of that when I heard th- this from Terry Francona. He was asked if he where he stands on robot umpires. And of course, they're trying out, um, quote unquote, robot umpires in AAA, working the kinks out, trying to see if they can bring it up to, to the major leagues at some point. And Francona's he says he doesn't like it. You know, if, if a curveball is bounced in the dirt and then crosses the plate. It's calling it a strike. You know, there's kind of glitches that they haven't kind of worked out yet. And they asked him if he was going to argue over a missed call, what would he do? He said wh- – who he would argue with. He said, I'd argue with a computer and I'd kick its blank too. Can you imagine charging the plate with a computer in your hand? <laughs> but but then after that, he went on to say that he thought that compared to 20 years ago, the umpires are much more accurate today than they ever were. And he, had, he, he points to StatCast and a lot of this – analytics software to back that up and i'm reading this and i'm thinking boy terry francona is really shrewd like he just grabbed a couple of inches in an interview about robot umpires and he says i i actually think this shows how good the umpires are these days that they're way better than they used to be now if you're an umpire like you're not gonna be calling balls and strikes based on what terry francona says but it can't hurt the guardians that he threw this just little tidbit out there to the umpire saying that he thinks that they're doing a really good job and that they're better than they were 20, 30 years ago when he was playing back in the day. I just thought that was really interesting that he managed to throw that out there and maybe he believes it and it, it but I just thought it was kind of an indication of what he's well, all. you Believe it or not yeah. is smart. Secondly, he probably says there. I think I still would rather argue with an
1: umpire than a computer, you know, I mean, in general. Now this has got to, I was trying to figure out how far back this went. Uh, this discussion the umpire's name was Jim McKeon he'd been around forever and I want to say it was during a rain delay and or that they called the game or whatever reason I was in the dugout talking to him and so I said to him I am very confused this is at least middle 90s if not earlier. what is the strike zone he goes well should I tell you the rule book or what we call and I said well I won't use your name if you tell me what we call. He said, okay, stand there. So he points to right below my kneecap. He goes, maybe an inch or two below your kneecap. That's the low strike. He points to like an inch or maybe a little more above the belt. That was it. So it's from kind of a little bit above the belt, a little bit below the knee. Then he held up his fingers about two and a half to three inches apart. he goes, and I give him that much on the outside corner. Oh, that much, really? Yeah, he says you get a couple inches from me on the outside corner, kind of two. Known
0: days. as the known as the Maddox margin. Maddox <laughs>
1: thing, yes, I said that. He <laughs> said, but a lot. He goes, but unlike Maddox, a lot of other guys don't know how to use that. Interesting. And I said, well, why is that? He said, well, hitters actually would rather deal with that pitch in the belt area a little bit below, and pitchers would rather have the advantage of that outside strike than say the letters you know of the uniform and i started watching and that is what a lot of those guys were calling back then now i i don't quite see that now i mean and look it very it drives you nuts you know some of these guys i i i never by the way like the argument that all i ask for consistency in the strike zone i don't care what it is consistent but what if the guy's calling a ball that bounces or what if you call you know a ball that bounces you know is four feet outside i'm no you don't want, you want consistency, something that looks
0: like a regular strike zone. So. Yeah. And you'll even see inconsistencies within a game with the, yeah. with one umpire Well, they'll change as the game goes along. So I think that you're right. That's what the players want is just, they want to know what it is every game so they can adjust and, um, and, and just, that was one of those,
1: you know, game within the game things and I like, oh. And I began to watch and cause you know, you do think, man, you are given that an outside. It's intentional. That's why it's given the outside strike. And everybody's
0: supposed to know this. If not, you're going to find it out. Yeah, and it's, um, I was also, we've all seen the old clips, and I know you did a book with Earl Weaver back in the mm-hmm. day, the old Orioles manager, and uh, I was just envisioning him and coming out and kicking dirt on a computer. Oh. <laughs> you well, know, Terry's talking about computers. The famous one he did in Cleveland in 1979.
1: I was covering in Baltimore then, is when he went out, uh, he hated Ron Luciano, and there was another umpire. I think it was with Luciano, though, he did it. And he came out with the rule book, and he ripped it up. He stood on the mound and just began ripping it up and throwing the paper. And he are going, this means nothing. This means nothing with a couple of F-bombs in between. And so I don't know whether he would go out there and try to bat in a, the hard drive or what with the computer.
0: We can only imagine him and he and Billy Martin would have uh, had a field day with this yes. computer stuff. So, All right, so the Guardians are home this weekend against Detroit. And then they have a road trip next week. They have three games in Houston, which is a tough place to win, as you know. And then they're going to be at Detroit for four games next weekend. So, It's a time time to get well, you know, really, with the
1: Tigers. And also, um, that's why I was disappointed the other day, losing that game to the Reds. They did come back. and I mean, look, you got Jose up with the bases loaded. It's like, you know, that's what you want. But overall, you look at a couple of things. One is – I know Miles Straw's batting average drop some or whatever, but he's still a really good leadoff man. Draws a lot of walks, works to count. Uh, Quan is starting to, you know, be welcome to the big league some. His numbers go down, but I still like the way he plays. He got Jose batting third. They do still need to get Reyes going. You know, he has a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I think Rosario is going to hit. He started slow last year. I think he'll hit again. Uh, Miller has been... You know, most underrated player on the team, unless it's Jim take your pick. Um, both of them have basically stabilized the right side of the infield. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot to go. They need to get the pitching squared away. I just, they just need, remember, people say, well, it isn't that bad or whatnot. Like, wait a minute. The average hitter is batting 232. So that ERA that's four or above, that's like 4.7 in the
0: old days. Yeah, it's, it's the exact opposite of what I think fans were expecting. So so we'll see how this road trip goes. Uh, the, the pitchers are starting to get their arms stretched out a little bit, going deeper into the games, and mm-hmm. I think that'll serve them well in terms of preserving the bullpen, and we'll see how next week goes. So, All right, Terry, let's get into the Browns a little bit. There's some reports knocking around that the Browns and David Njoku might be close to an extension. I know you've kind of been lukewarm on David Njoku Uh over his time with the Browns. And do you think this is a good move for them to pick up his extension? I'd like to see the money,
1: money, David, but I wouldn't overpay for this guy. I mean, I just don't think it's always been potential. And this, I mean, he has had some nice moments. Uh, I mean, maybe everything changes when they get Watson and maybe these tight ends become the type of tight ends that Stefanski um, in pictured when He brought the offense in, you know, whether you go back to Hooper and Njoku and Harrison Bryant. I mean, they've been talking about how these tight ends can be big weapons, but they've yet to be that. So perhaps, you know, it is quarterback problems, but I would give him the joke with this. He used to be a horrendous blocker. He's gotten to be a lot better. Um, He certainly has a size to do things near the goal line, but I haven't seen the consistency, but I think he just turned 25 or he's going to. So.
0: Yeah, I think uh, he's going to be 26 on July 10th. And uh, some other numbers. I think you had this one in your Hey Terry columns. He's just for fans to get the numbers. 55 catches in 29 games over the last two seasons. So.
1: I'm like, we'll see. Yeah, we'll
0: we'll see. I know this.
1: He's got a big fan in Andrew Berry,
0: And, of course, they are take the Sean Watson Bahamas trip is happening. So they will be. They'll be all bonding as they make that trip. So, hey, one of the things we didn't get to talk about, Terry, was the schedule release last week. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of interesting. The Browns only ended up with two night games. One of them is in week three on September 22nd at home against the Steelers. And then the other one is going to be a Monday night game on Halloween against the Bengals. And that's also at home. Were you surprised that the Browns didn't get more primetime Love from the schedule makers, or I guess it could flex some, but I mean, they were
1: eight and nine, David. And they have a guy who may be suspended, even if he's not, it's not a narrative I think they particularly want to go out there and talk a lot about on national TV, you know, the Sean Watson case. And so, I don't see why, other than the fact. The Browns do bring in some really nice national TV ratings when they're on those games because the fanatic fan base across the country. But do they deserve it? No. So you get a couple, they might flex one more. Depends how they play.
0: Yeah, and I think eight, you're right. I I, I think eight, that nine, they. Man. I mean, they were eight nine. Well, and also with the Deshaun Watson narrative, you're right. If you have a game on at one o'clock on a Sunday up against a bunch of other games and you don't have the top TV teams doing the games in terms of the announcers, things can kind of just roll along. And I think you're right. Mary Kay Cabot, our colleague, talked to the league and they said, oh, yeah, the Watson stuff had no bearing on it. But I I look at this schedule (laughs) and it's it's it is it's hard to believe that. Right. I mean, if you look at the last month, the last five weeks, all right, they have Cincinnati on the road, Baltimore at home, New Orleans at home, at Washington and at Pittsburgh. Those games could all flex, Mm -hmm. like you said. And if Watson is playing late in the season and they and they want to, they could move some of those into primetime. But I I thought it was a really I, I thought I thought the Watson thing did figure into this. It just felt like it. And they're they they're going to say what they want, but it's about money. It's it's all about money and, and, and making sure that they're taking care of their TV partners.
1: David, nobody does TV better than the NFL in terms of sports. They've turned the schedule being released into the Super Bowl or the NFL draft. And it's incredible what they have, you know, the schedule show. The, the combine, these guys in shorts running around doing nothing, really just nothing. And then you have, oh, the interviews, you know. Oh, this, this guy's going to talk today. It's just mind-boggling how they've been able to, and we all play right into it because the appetite for this stuff is so uh, insatiable. So they, when they make out their schedule, of course, they're looking at every PR benefit slash hindrance and saying which makes the most sense for us. Oh, gee, we can have Cleveland on national TV, and now let's put Patrick Mahomes, you know. Let's put the Rams on uh, Joe Burrow. You know, he's he's something else right now. I mean, the, the thing is, you might have Joe Jacoby percent earlier or not. I, I, by the way, I'm done playing the, how many games he is or isn't going to get suspended. I have no idea what they're going to do. Um, it's just like I keep getting, you know, more and more things and, you know, conspiratorial theories about Baker Mayfield and what they're going to do. And, you know, this stuff has just got to work itself out. Uh, and I know this, the Browns do not want Baker Mayfield back. That I do know, whether Watson
0: suspended or not. All right, so speaking of people who might be coming back, Terry, yes. the Browns have kind of been courting Jadavian Clowney as mm-hmm. they did last year. They're, if you're Andrew Barry, there's going to have to come a point where you won't be able to wait anymore. I mean, you're going to have to move on a defensive tackle or two for some depth, for some experience. How long do you think the Browns should wait on Clowney? He, he, he's, he's notorious for waiting until late in the process to sign to see what his offers are and just to kind of make sure he's, he's feeling good about his situation. How, do you, how long do you wait?
1: Well, one thing they do know is they've had him in camp, so they have an idea what kind of shape he comes in and all that stuff. And like Nagam Kinsu, we talked about him being out there, which really interests me. I mean, I might, I might actually prefer him to Clowney. I really might even though he's a tackle on that, I just think he's a, he brings a real presence to the interior of a line right now, which I keep looking at those names and they do nothing for me. You know, Jordan Elliott and uh, who else, who the heck else they have Tommy Togia and I forgot who else are the defensive tackles. Uh, You know, Perry and Winfrey, gave great press conferences, but let's see what happens when he's on the, on the field. Uh, so it'd be nice to have somebody like Sue in there because even if he's a a, a defensive tackle and a four-three defense, and they line him up. You know why he's not totally opposite of Miles Garrett, but there's a guy in between guys, a guy in between him, say, uh, you have to account for both of those guys. That's what they really need. They need somebody else on a defensive line that defenses must account for besides Garrett. I'm sorry, offenses opposing an offenses must account for.
0: Yeah, and they do have a little flexibility in terms of moving guys inside and outside. But, the, yeah, they, it's getting – you know, we're getting toward minicamp here in June. They're, they're going to have to make a decision, I think, uh-huh. pretty soon in terms of how they're going to shape shape that I do say around. this.
1: I think if they were totally in love with Clowney and willing to go multi-year, he'd be here now. So my feeling is they're probably talking one year for him, and he's trying to see if somebody else wants to talk more than a year.
0: Some, probably a little bit more than last year's eight million plus incentives, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah or just a year, yeah. So. Fully
1: guaranteed option for a third, or something. I mean, he's at the point now with his injuries and age. It's like, I'm sure he wants some of that.
0: All right, Terry, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk a uh, little Cavaliers with Evan Mobley. He made the all rookie first team this week. We'll talk. I know you wanted to get into this, uh, this OHSAA vote on name, image, and likeness, which was voted down where high school athletes are not allowed to get. Uh, have endorsements and we can talk about your faith column and we had some great responses last week we talked about uh, memorabilia a little bit with the jersey from the hand of god gold diego maradona in 1986 being sold for millions of dollars and we were kind of talking about what our what piece of cleveland sports memorabilia we would like we got some really great responses to that we'll get into that so we'll be right back on terry's talking we're back on Terry's Talking, David Campbell and Terry Pluto. Terry, Evan Mobley of the Cavs was named to the all-rookie first team on Wednesday night. Um, he was one of three unanimous selections. He joins Toronto's Scotty Barnes and Detroit's Cade Cunningham. That Those guys were the other two unanimous selections. So what did you think of that? And I also wanted to see if you thought that Scotty Barnes should have won Rookie of the Year the way he did over Mobley. Um, the problem
1: that happened is just the. The Cavaliers had a chance to lock up a playoff berth and didn't. I believe had they done so, Mobley would have gotten it. Barnes got his team in, and I just think that those voters who were on the fence um, did. Now, I believe Chris Fedor said there were one or two writers that like left
0: Mobley off the top three or something. That's inexcusable. Yeah. So here's my theory on that, Terry. So. Scotty Barnes is playing in a division with the Celtics, the Sixers, yep. the Knicks, Brooklyn, and we all know how dense the media market is there in terms of, how, there's probably way more voters mm-hmm. uh, per geographic area in the East Coast than there are in the rest of the country. And so you've got all these voters seeing Scotty Barnes on TV more, in person more, and I wonder if that helps swing the vote. Or it could be what you say, too. I don't know.
1: I mean, it was I think a lot of people, I'm not sure which one. Then you just look at it. Okay, he got his team in. The other one didn't. And on top of it, the Cavaliers finished poorly. So, you know, while not a lot of Mobley things, so that's why you go Barnes won Mobley too, you know, and a lot of people who aren't watching it closely. Because I admit, I didn't watch a ton of Scotty Barnes. So I saw him, I thought he was pretty good. But if I had a vote, I would have voted Mobley. I've seen a lot more of him. And I did now. It was interesting. Right after the draft in twenty one, real GM, I believe it was, or the Athletic, one of the other, pulled different GMs from each. They got some of the executive player personnel from each team, and they picked. uh, I think they picked the kid from Detroit to become rookie of the year for this year. But the interesting, yeah, Cunningham. But the question really was. Who will be the best player in three to five years? And overwhelmingly, it was Mobley who was named. This was before they played a game. So that told me that those on the inside are just looking at the kid, figuring he just may need a year or two with his size, because generally big people take a little longer
0: um, to come around. But So that, that bodes so well. It does, yeah. And just for stat comparison, Scotty Barnes, 74 games, 15.3 points per game, 1.08 steals per game, 3.5 assists per game, and 7.5 rebounds a game. Evan Mobley played in 69 games, 15 points a game, 1.67 blocks, 2.5 assists, 8.3 rebounds. He shot 50.8% from the field. So there was not much to choose from there in terms of the stats. If you were just trying to do some numbers, I I think... um, I think Mobley had a higher shooting percentage from the field, and Scotty Barnes had a higher percentage from the free throw line. So it was, it was, it was.
1: it was close. Yeah, you you could have gone deep into some of the defensive analytics where Mobley really sparkles, Uh, and I'm sure Barnes does not because Mobley is such a good rim defender. But I mean, I'm not going. This is not like some guy played in New York and he just got it because he played in New York. I'm not going to give him that. I mean, Toronto, Toronto, and Cleveland are teams are trying to put themselves back together. And they both have players, you know, that they could say, all right, these guys are going to help us get there.
0: All right. I don't think I mentioned it. The other two guys on the team were Orlando's Franz Wagner and Jalen Green from Houston. So, uh, all right, Terry, high school sports this week, the OHSAA, which oversees high school sports in Ohio and all the championships, they released the vote on. How the schools voted on name, image, and likeness, which is another word for allowing athletes to get endorsements and get paid for doing commercials or whatever, whatever comes their way. The schools voted it down, and that means that high school athletes in Ohio cannot, under OHSA rules, do endorsements, get paid for for things like that. I know you're working on a column on this and I haven't read it yet, but what's what's your take on this? I want to hear what you're what you're thinking.
1: Okay. What I'm thinking is A, I don't like the NIL rule for high schools B it's coming. You might as well get set. It's coming. And so my column was saying like Ohio, okay, I can see voting it down once, but now they should go into some serious discussions of how to implement this because there's nine States right now that have it more will be adding to it. Uh, Interesting group of States, by the way, it's not red state, blue state or whatever. Alaska, Nebraska, New York, California, Louisiana. That's five that I remember. So I looked at that. There's no pattern whatsoever other than it seems to me these people thought, we better get out ahead of this. Because the last thing I need is some you know district court or wherever this goes deciding to make rules for my state high school athletic association. Because you put it in the court's hands, um, they're going to either demand you do it quickly or they'll start doing it themselves. And this is Absolutely. going to court. This is going, there's no way from here it is July 7th, 2021, when the court system intervened and said NCAA can allow muscle out uh, those NIL things. And that has led to, you know, all kinds of athletes making a ton of money um, at that level uh, it's just a matter of time till it comes to high school. You know, people have pointed out to me, you know, a 16-year-old high school tennis player makes a lot of money. Nobody's saying they can't take it. Um, you're in a band, one of those boy bands or girl bands that were around, that, you know, were teenagers. So they're out there, you know, making some money. Um, but what you want I, – I do think in terms of big money, how many of these athletes is it really going to apply to? I don't think very many. Finally well, – yeah. One more thing. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. I mean, in the old days, back when it was like you can't, um, you had to live in your district to play for that public high school. I mean, we all who've been around sports for a while, I heard the stories of this, you know, district coach went to the players' parents that, you know, 50 miles away, said, man, we got a great Ford plant here and they're always hiring. And my neighbor there, she's a real estate agent and she could really help you. Right. You know, so just move over here. You're in the district. You got a job and uh, and we'll make sure your kid gets to Ohio State or whatever. So that's been going on for a long time. So let's not get too caught up on the purity of this. Meantime, 80 or 90 percent of the high school sports have just been and I think would continue to be just plain old high school sports as we know them. Well, yeah. yeah, and
0: getting back to what you were saying, I mean, we saw this with gambling uh, yeah. where, oh, West Virginia's got it and, and Illinois yeah. getting it and New York's getting Why? it. And and it, pretty soon, if you don't have it and Indiana and Kentucky and Pennsylvania do in Michigan, kids are going to be leaving mm-hmm. Ohio to go play, like you said, they're going to be moving to other states so they can get this stuff. And then the other part of this to me is just like, who do the NCAA and, I mean, the, the OHSAA can say, well, the, the, the schools voted on this, but this is like a – this. Country is built on free market capitalism, and if some auto dealer wants to give a kid five hundred dollars for being player of the week for the local basketball team, like who who are you to stop that? Yeah, uh, I mean, like you said, it happens in every walk of life, except for in sports where the NCAA and now the OHSA have have had rules where you cannot take money. It's just I insane st- to me.
1: I still think that a lot of the elite athletes are going to go to Oak Hill. Or they're going to go to uh, my brother works part time at ING, based, ING Academy down in Bradenton. And he, when he was younger, he was full time there. I mean, it's an athletic factory and they have good academics for those kids. It's like it's a super situation. And those places, are, now there's even more of them. You know, we have, was it Pinnacle or, or uh, what's the place we have up uh, where uh, ball played a couple of years ago?
0: uh spire academy, in spire academy. yeah mm-hmm. excuse
1: me yeah we have that they're they're all over there there's this place in las vegas finley academy and a whole bunch of tristan thompson and a bunch of other guys went through there so those have always been around they're going to continue to be around they don't by the way they're not in most most of the schools are not in their uh high school association so they do what they want anyway uh, so i just think well it's going to affect some I just don't think the impact's going to be that big, and I don't want the courts making the rules. I'd rather the schools who are on the ground coming up with something that's a lot more cohesive and, and that fits their culture.
0: Yeah, and if you think about it, Terry, the NCAA has been the only institution in the country that ha- has been able to restrict what people make. Yep. With, without it, without a CBA or some kind of a labor agreement. They're just like, well, we're just going to make these rules. You can't take money, and that's it, and you have no recourse. In the meantime – NIL NIL, there is
1: now in recruiting. And I'm watching uh, Daniel Robinson trying to throw together his roster. I'm going to write about this weekend for Cleveland State. You know what it reminds me of? When Dennis Gates came in here three years ago trying to throw in his roster, throw together his roster quickly, it's the same type of kids. You know, maybe some of these kids are, you know, going to get free pizza at the Rascal House or something, but that's it. Nobody's going to hand somebody hundred grand to play for Cleveland State. You know, it's not going to be that way. Now, the upper level, uh, there was an interview, very interestingly with uh, Nick Saban the other day, and he said – the Alabama players last year got about a total of $3 million from NIL. But then he was yelling about how Texas A&M just bought everybody.
0: You know, Yeah, because Alabama finished number two in the recruiting rankings. Recruiting so rankings. One. what happened. Yeah. They
1: bought everybody. I mean, I don't know, but he threw that number out. But it wasn't for everybody on the roster. And, of course, in some ways, um, the premier programs – the fact that their guy can make some substantial amount of money and stay in school another year as opposed to being, say, a sixth or seventh round or undrafted free agent um, in the NFL draft, that actually could act, could work to help the school. Absolutely. My thing has always been there's like, I don't know, 40 schools. Pick a number, David. They're playing their own game in basketball and football. I mean, just cheat. Whatever you want to do, I don't care. You know, you guys are doing that. And as you notice, and I think the readers have too, I kind of go from the pros and then I drop down to the mid-majors and below. Uh, it is nothing against, I mean, I enjoy watching the big-time guys play. When it comes to writing, I just get a real enjoyment out of the MAC or, you know, the Horizon League or, you know, Division three that stuff. It just because that that's where, the, that's where it's at. And I have not seen any impact, of the NIL, in terms of, At those levels, just as I don't think we'll see much of an impact, the NIL at 80 to 90 percent of the programs around. And you've been involved. You've had kids in high school recently
0: and all that. Do you see anything
1: coming from this?
0: No, no. But I mean, the thing is, you need to take the, the restrictions off and let the market find what it's going to mm-hmm. find. And if if Cleveland State gets money, great. And if they don't, then that's what people are willing to pay. It's just the yeah. way it is. So yeah, so I, I mean, uh, you're right, though. It's coming, Terry. It is coming. It's coming.
1: And it, just right. say, well, no, that's the worst thing you can do. I I never particularly am thrilled about having, you know, a massive government agency. I'm not saying I'm against government helping or whatever. Believe me. Uh, I've become an, uh, ex, a mini expert over the years in helping some people from our church how to get Medicare and food stamps and Medicaid. Uh, and thank God for those things because they it, really help needy people. So I'm not one of these government out of my life guys. But when it comes to a lot of things, you know, look at your tax form. You know, do you really want that to become all the rules for you know, high school sports? There's enough of them already.
0: Yeah. Well, my thing is if, if the reason the coaches make so much money is because the players haven't been paid and I'd yeah. rather have the players get the money because they're the ones who are out there putting it on the line. So, um, all right, Terry, we're up against time a little bit. We got a lot to get, lot to get to here. Let's talk about your faith in you column this week. You write about this idea of seeing people who mm-hmm. might be in need and how you can take a, a fresh view of them and, and how you can help them out. Uh, why don't you talk about that real quick?
1: Yeah. It comes from a, uh... A friend of mine who's a pastor at akron's um house of the lord uh the, the the main pastor is bishop joey johnson Who, by the way after five months after heart surgery has just come back his assistant is a younger guy darren Brake, and he did a series on acts chapter three where jesus uh, i'm sorry where peter and john two disciples are walking along the road they see a disabled man man's begging for money um they stop and finally Peter looks down and says, "Look at me." The man is so discouraged; he doesn't even look up as he's begging. And then the big line: "There is silver and gold, I do not have." But in the name of Jesus, walk. And he and he reaches down and helps the man up. The idea was not that we're going to be able to get people um, suddenly who couldn't walk to walk, but looking at someone, touching someone. It's like like a friend of mine. Uh, Amanda Rabinowitz, she, uh, she and I do commentaries together on what's well, now idea stream in at WKSU and her mother, uh, is in a nursing home, had massive stroke. So what she does, she goes over and sits with her mom and they watch her mom's favorite TV shows. That's it. Does it change the stroke? No, but does it make her make them both feel good? Yes. I mean, every five days a week, I go over to the nursing home and see she's quote unquote, my mom, Melva, And, um, you know, she's 96, and we get up, and we walk all the way around the lower floor, and Melva should have come back as up uh, in her next life, she could be a weather lady, she loves the weather, so I get up, we've we guessed, like, what the temperature is, and then I get out my cell phone, we look at the forecast, then we look outside at this big picture window, see, in other words, see the person where they're at, touch them where they are, you know, and they, whether it's, I prefer a phone call to a text, but a text is better than nothing, and that's what uh, he was, was preaching about, and, it, and money helps, too. I'm not denying that. I always say, people who say money isn't anything are just kidding themselves, and people who say money is everything are probably going to hurt themselves, but money something. You know,
0: money is something, but it's not everything, and it's certainly not nothing. Well, yeah, and as you point out in the column, which of course will go up on Saturday on cleveland.com, and then you can catch it in print in the Plain Dealer on Sunday. But just just being there. You don't have to do anything extraordinary. Just be there, and that goes a long way, doesn't it?
1: And and, and seeing the person. And you can't do this for everybody. That's the other thing I want to stress. It's not being a guilt trip. You can't help everybody and everything. But there are certain people that are in your life, and it's very clear that God is speaking to you on some people. And to just encourage them, and and go for that so and as right, I so a couple of weeks ago don't try to fix you can't fix most of these people
0: well yeah and you wrote about rocky calavito yeah. a month or so ago about how he he just was there for herb score right even when they couldn't talk you know when right. herb couldn't talk just there for her but there it was so and how much it meant to how much it meant to him to be there so All right, Terry, we had some really good response last week. I I brought up this thing about Diego Maradona's jersey from the hand of God goal in the 86 World Cup. I think it went for eight point five million dollars, if I remember correctly. And I was asking you what you would love to have if money was no object, some piece of Cleveland sports memorabilia. You said you wanted Rocky Colavito's bat from when he hit four homers in a game on June 10th, 1959 in Baltimore. I said I wanted LeBron's shorts from the Draymond Green kicking incident in the NBA Finals. And I would like a Lou Boudreau jersey from the 1948 World Series because I, I, I'm i a big Lou Boudreau fan. So, so I wanted to read some of these answers we got from some people who emailed us. Um, and there's some really good ones in here. So this one's from Edward Raditz from Sandusky. He says, I would love to have a Dick Raditz the Monster jersey from one of the years wow. he was with the Indians yeah. from 66 to 67. And it doesn't even have to be signed. Just give me the name on his back. My last name is Rad. It's spelled just like him. It's not a common name. I wrote him a letter back in the day talking about our common last name. I was really hoping I might get some free tickets. (laughs) I got a postcard with his black and white photo on one side and two words on the other side in parentheses, no relation. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was a good story. So thanks for that, Edward. Um, Lou Boyd says he would like the ball from Bill Wamsgans' unassisted triple play in the 1920 World Series, and he would like a signed shoeless Joe Jackson contract from when he played for Cleveland. I thought those were good ones. That's good. Yeah. Ed Golick, he says he would like to have an autographed baseball from Bob Feller's opening day no-hitter on April 6, 1940, in Chicago at Comiskey Park. I like that, too. That's uh, this big, is
1: autographed baseball by Bob Fowler. You could probably find that out there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. He was you a big autograph. For signing autographs.
0: Absolutely. This is from longtime listener Paul Cosgrove from Stowe. He says, when you brought up sports memorabilia, I immediately thought about a story from my favorite sports book, Terry's Brownstown, 1964. In the book, Terry tells a story about Casey Coleman. Who was then a ball boy for the Browns and would become a future Cleveland sportscaster, as, as most fans know. In the locker room after the 64 championship game win against the Colts, Casey retrieved Jim Brown's practice cleats from the trash wow. where Brown had discarded them. Brown only had two pairs of shoes for the year a pair for the game and a pair for practice. <laughs> it's shocking to see how different pro sports was then and now. Pros have a new uniform every game and unlimited shoes. I wonder where those practice shoes are now. And the last one. Jack from Erie, he says, I'd like an empty bottle of champagne from the Cavs Championship locker room in 2016, and I'd like Oral Hershiser's blue jersey from the 1995 ALCS. And he also says, I'd like Arthur Rhodes' diamond earring that caused the huge scuffle with Omar Vizquel in 2001. <laughs> Do you remember that? You know, I think was Arthur I'm Rhodes pitching that... for the Orioles back then. I'm trying to remember. You know, another one that I would like, just thinking of that,
1: would be, I would like a autographed jersey. That Dennis Martinez wore when he outdueled Randy Johnson in Game Six of the '95 playoffs to send the um, the Indians then to the World Series, um, because Sheldon Oker from the Beacon Journal, I was at the Beacon then, we both ran into Dennis that morning. He was p- like pacing in the lock lobby talking to us, and and then he went out and he was like. Man, I got to pitch Randy Johnson because I hope I'm not out there alone. These guys, they better be ready to play. I mean, he was like, they always like a cat on a hot tin roof. That is how he was. Then he stops and he holds, he goes, he reaches in his pocket and he holds up this thing. This is a golden Buckeye. Bob Feller gave it to me the other day.
0: No kidding. Good luck.
1: And I'm taking this. (laughs) I'll I'll take the golden Buckeye or I'll take an autographed jersey from Dennis Martinez because he outpitched Randy Johnson. In the kingdom, that was, of course, the game uh, Kenny Lofton scored from second base on a pass ball, Uh, by far the most memorable uh, game in my lifetime. And And that even superseded the 2016 championship game for the Cavs, probably because I grew up an Indians fan and seemed to wait so long for that moment. To be exact, I was born in 55, and this was
0: 1995. Wow, great story. Uh, Hey, so listen. If you want to send us some more of your memorabilia things from Cleveland sports that you'd like to have, again, I think I got the price wrong. The Maradona jersey went for nine point three million, Terry. So uh, that knocked you out. You were good at eight point five, (laughs) but none of us will be. I don't think buying that anytime soon. But send it to us at sports@cleveland.com, or if you want to hit Terry up on his Facebook page. But uh, yeah, we'd love to get uh, your memorabilia idea on next week's podcast, or if you have a hey Terry question. We will get back into the Hey Terry's next week when we return. So, all right, Terry, anything else you want to get into? Well, that'll be it other than the shameless plug for the two
1: appearances. June 7th, <laughs> 7 p.m. be Library, June 7th, 7 p.m. be Library, June 14th, 6.30 p.m. Wall of Books in Parmatown. So that's June 14th, 6.30 p.m. at the Wall of Books in Parmatown. Both times I'm giving a talk first and I'll take some questions and then if people want books signed, and I'm sure they'll make it very available if you want to buy some. But these are the first appearances I've made, David, since uh, uh, pretty much since the pandemic. I think there was one I might have done in January at, at Hudson that at it and that's it. So it would be nice to be able to get out. A couple other libraries are
0: asking too, So, and I've always enjoyed those. For sure. And you have done those for a long time and it's great to have you back out, uh, able to meet with people face to face. There's nothing like it. So enjoy the hot weather, everybody. It's going to warm up finally. And we'll catch you next week on Terry's Talk.